Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 24, verses 30 to 32. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? The word of God for the people of God. So our Easter series is about awakening, awakening to the experience of the risen savior, awakening to God's grace being offered into our lives. And so we looked at last week how Jesus is a different kind of king. And today we look at that Emmaus Road experience, essentially moving from head to heart in understanding our faith. Now, um, the Emmaus Road is a, a, a great example of um, one of the appearances of Jesus after Easter. Scripture tells us that Jesus appears 12 times after Easter prior to his ascension, and that some of those resurrection appearances uh, were to groups. Uh, one was to one person, Mary, um, and the groups could be as large as 500 people. Uh, this is helpful not just in um, uh, establishing a historical record uh, about where the resurrected Christ appeared, but it's also uh, an interesting moment to kind of turn people who were uh, still very shocked about Jesus's arrest and crucifixion, but then also cementing in their uh, lives um, this experience of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, and so much so, you have uh, the appearance to the disciples and Peter, um, you know, uh, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Um, you have the experience here on the road to Emmaus uh, about uh, helping them put together the prophecies from the Old Testament, uh, along with the uh, events that they had lived through uh, during Jesus's public ministry. And so this Emmaus road is very much a, a shift in paradigm, uh, a kind of a holy awakening if you will. Um, when I think about this story, um, I think about uh, perspective, uh, perception, how our perception can change and transform how we view things. Now, this is uh, from uh, Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams uh, was the uh, star. Uh, Robin Williams is a literature professor at a um, high school academy, a, a prep academy, a, a dormitory living all boys, right? So he comes in, he's very much the iconoclast. He's not lockstep with the administration, and he is interested in seeing these boys become creative, to think outside the box, and to kind of own themselves. Now, one of the things that he does is kind of iconic is he invites the students to stand on the teacher's desk, which you see him doing right there, because he wants them to have a different view of the room. And also he encourages them to scream a barbaric yelp, but that's less helpful for my sermon than the perspective thing. <laughs> And so the clip is wonderful. You watch each of the kids in their own way come and stand on the desk and view the different perspective of the room and yelp. What's interesting is to watch them do it in their own style, 
in their own moment as they begin to see things differently. Now, I believe that the road to Emmaus, this experience of God's grace that we get, um, is one of those perceptual moves that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see what God's, what's possible for God to do in your life, it's hard to unsee those possibilities. In fact, as uh, kind of uh, cheesy as it might be, it's not unlike some of those visual perception uh, pictures that we're all familiar with, right? If you did not know that there's both a duck and a, um, a rabbit up there, well, guess what? There's a duck and a rabbit. It's all about your perception, right? People come to these um, pictures with a little bit of an expectation of what's going to be there. And if you've never seen it before, when someone says, hey, did you notice the rabbit's ears are the bill of the duck? They go, oh, right? And you can't unsee it. Does everybody see both the rabbit and the duck? Okay, just making sure. Um, Or is it a vase or two silhouettes, right? Oh, right, I know these are older than dirt and the internet has ruined them for everyone. But I tried to do some some new ones, right? Something a little bit fresh. Is it a pirate ship on the ocean or a kite that the man's flying? It's It's a kite, but it looks like it's right there on the horizon, right? Beautiful, interesting picture there. Perception changes everything. Your first glance, as you look at it, wow, I didn't know they made pirate ships like that. And then you realize it's a kite. Same idea, perception can change our perspective of things that we know about. You ever wonder what a shark thinks as it's planning its meal for the night? (laughs) There's a boat kind of off to the side and a guy standing on the swim platform. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. This is the kind of perceptual move that these uh, visual um, illusions provide. When we think about the story, uh, sorry, perception, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And when we think about the story of the road to Emmaus, it is a reminder of that seeing where you did not see before. Now, the, the story of the road to Emmaus is about um, two followers of Jesus who are walking to the road to Emmaus. It would have been, I don't know, maybe two, a day and a half, two day uh, walk. Um, they walked um, because there weren't many other ways to travel. Um, as they're walking along, um, a stranger joins them as they're walking and they're talking about the events that just recently happened. Um, not unlike um, if a, a bad storm comes through the next day at the um, water cooler at work, you talk about the effects of the storm, um, much like how um, for days after 9-11, I found myself in circles where people were processing and understanding that really radical and tragic event. Um, not unlike those experiences, um, the followers of Jesus that are walking to the road to Emmaus are talking about what's happened. Did you know? We, we thought he was the one. And and then, um, you know, the miracles that he did, the authority that he taught scripture with, and then he was arrested. We couldn't believe it. And he was tried and persecuted. They uh, they whipped him and they made him carry his own cross uh, to the uh, place where he'd be crucified. And and do you you remember, did you see him? He, he, He said those last words, Lord, into your hands, I commend your spirit. And he died. We couldn't believe we thought he was the one. 
And then, did you hear? The, the women went out to prepare his body, and it was gone. They say they saw him and that he's resurrected. But boy, that's a whole lot to take in. Just don't know what I think about that. So the stranger that's walking with the disciples uh, begins to ask questions about what they're talking about. And, and the followers of Jesus say, where have you been? Have you been under a rock? Did you not know what's been happening over the course of Passover and with uh, Jesus? Have you not heard anything about him? He says, we just don't know uh, why he wasn't the one. And the stranger walking with him says, oh, yeah, and begins to explain to uh, the, the followers of Jesus about the prophecies in the Old Testament and the events that we now recognize as the New Testament and the Gospels. And, and as he explains it to them, the, the disciples begin to understand and begin to get what's going on. They come to a fork in the road and uh, headed to Emmaus, and they invite the stranger to come along with them. Hospitality was always very important in those days. And so they go to a house, and they um, uh, get set down for a meal. Now, it could be that it was just a meal, um, but when you read over this scripture passage in your bulletin or later on tonight, um, there are four action words that are described. Jesus takes the bread. He breaks the bread. He blesses the bread and he gives it. Those are those four um, uh, um, consecration activities that we believe Jesus did in the upper room with the Lord's Supper the first time he celebrated it. And so those words are kind of a, a clue and a key to folk who are familiar with the uh, other parts of the story leading up to the road to Emmaus. And in the minute of uh, breaking blessing and giving that bread, the disciples recognized the risen Savior. They recognize who it was they were walking with. They recognize that they're at the table of the Lord. And then he disappears. And you can say he disappears and, and they are sad and depressed and frustrated. But no, they remember this as a touchstone moment. Verse 32 says, they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and we'd explain the scriptures for us. See, this is one of those uh, experiences, those moments that will solidify in their head and in their heart uh, what it means to follow Jesus. The disciples knew all the texts. They had seen Jesus in action, but only when he breaks the bread do they recognize Jesus for who he is. You know, it's not a coincidence that uh, the um, spiritual life retreat, both for men and women, called the Walk to Emmaus, uh, there's one going on this weekend for men, um, is one of these experiences where um, for folk who have known the head knowledge, uh, it is matched with heart experiences throughout the weekend. So that by the time you finish, you've had a chance for that head and heart moment to come together in your faith. Um, I... Um, when we think about how important that is, I, um, I have to say there's a question, uh, is discipleship a matter of the head or a matter of the heart? Do, do you make disciples by uh, shoving them into a very emotional experience of worship where they can um, uh, get the spiritual high? Or is it about learning and memorizing uh, the books of the Bible and the content of the scriptures and the Old Testament prophecies? Is discipleship head or is discipleship heart? Emotion versus logic. I think it's fair to say if we wanted to describe 
uh, in the extreme that emotion-only Christians are a little bit terrifying, right? It's um, emotion-only Christians where they have no head and all heart is that faith is a feeling. And you only get that feeling when you're around other Christians. And, and other people are Christians only if they have the same feeling that we do in the same moment. It's all or nothing. I got to uh, preach at a, a new church start uh, when I was coming out of seminary uh, just for one Sunday. And they were so celebratory around worship. Uh, and, and at that point, um, I wasn't really sure exactly what all was going on, but okay, I can preach, that's cool. Um, and afterwards they said, you know, it was okay, but we're just really not sure that you get it, Pastor. We, we didn't see the enthusiasm. We, we didn't see the joy as we were worshiping. And I was like, yeah, because I was nervous about preaching to a new congregation, <laughs> right? All or nothing. And in some ways, emotion-only Christians are always pursuing that next spiritual high. Uh, you know, it has to be bigger, has to be better. It has to kind of give me the chills one more time. And if that, uh, that experience of that spiritual high ever disappears, they doubt their faith and they're unsure about their relationship with Jesus. Uh, sometimes I think that emotion only uh, Christians are uh, kind of pushed in that direction because they lack study. They just don't wanna know the facts about uh, faith. They just want to have the experience of faith. When we look at the other extreme, logic only Christians, they know about Jesus without experiencing Jesus, right? Um, when you study the Bible with logic-only Christians, everything in the Bible means something other than what it actually says. Let me explain it to you, right? The Greek word actually means, or uh, there's a uh, Palestinian ancient custom of, or, or really what this says is that Jesus was trying to, nothing ever means what it actually means. There's always a deeper factual narrative that needs to be explained. Oftentimes in a church that's logic predominant, that they are ethics over enthusiasm. Um, I preached during seminary at um, uh, one of the churches that was near the campus at uh, Duke uh, University. The um, congregation uh, probably had more degrees, um, uh, each one of them on average, than I had letters in my name. I mean, they just knew everything about everything. They were um, very much the typical academic congregation. And it was interesting. Their ministries, if you looked, were predominantly about social justice and about right ethical action. But when you looked at worship itself, it was a stoic experience of no enthusiasm or emotion. Logic only Christians. Um, sometimes I think they are pushed in that direction of logic only because they lack an outlet for prayer or for worship that makes sense. Now these are both really extreme stereotypes, but can you, can you kind of grab on to this idea of head and heart, and that if we divorce one from the other, we've really kind of uh, limited and stunted our faith? Uh, many people have said uh, and been quoted that the hardest journey in the life of an adult is, uh, is eight inches. It's from the head to the heart. I would say the same might be true in the reverse, heart to head, and that the ideal faith, the faith that we find in the road to Emmaus, is a faith of both head and of heart. Jonathan Edwards, um, great theologian, great historical preacher from the beginnings of America, uh, says, your mind can know honey is sweet. People can tell you it's sweet. You've read books about it, but if you haven't actually tasted it, you know with your head, but not with your heart. 
Does that kind of make sense? That head and heart moment as it comes together. When we have both head and heart knowledge, we want to proclaim our story and show what God has done for us. The the idea here is um, uh, if we only know with our head, but not with our heart, we've never experienced the love of Jesus, but we could tell you all the scripture references. And if we only experience with our heart and not with our head, then we know the powerful things that God has done in our lives. But unless you've had those powerful things happen in your life, then you must not be faithful as I am. And when the two come together, we are willing to tell our testimony of what has happened in our lives. It's easy to assume that telling a testimony of how God has moved powerfully in our lives is an easy way for people to flood to the limelight, to to get an ego hit, to be able to brag about how holy they are. But in the Wesleyan terms of a testimony, John Wesley used testimonies uh, written down in letter form to um, move from one uh, community to another community. Because you might be a single mother in one town and know no other single mothers And if uh, another single mother writes a testimony of how God has powerfully moved in her life and you read about it in your community, you are convinced that God cares about people who are just like you. That the opportunity to hear a testimony is to be reminded that even when you're at the end of your rope, with God, you're not at the end of your hope. For example, Um, Many of you have heard me tell the story that after my uh, second um, surgery, um, the first one removed my large intestine, the second one was to take care of aggressive scar tissue that was wrapping around the blood supply of my abdomen. Um, the, the, The surgeon, having opened me up and removing two of the tumors, found two more deep down in my abdomen. And he said, there's no way I can cut on this without severing the blood supply to his abdomen. So he packed me back up and he sewed me back up and he, very much like the medical drama kind of moment, he walks out to Amy, you know, still has his little beanie on, his scrubs on, he's pulled the mask aside and he says, Mrs. Camerano, we've done everything we can. We just can't get those last two tumors. We've sewed them up and let's take six weeks to figure out what we'll do next. I wake up from anesthesia an hour later. Amy has tears running down her face. Her, her eyes are bloodshot. You can tell things didn't go well. And I, I ask, well, how, how'd the surgery go? And she tells me. Six weeks later, we come in to have our uh, staples taken out and he's taken imaging. And um, though it was probably on a computer screen, but what I remember is he walks in with an x-ray, uh, the film, and he, he goes into the light box. And he turns back and looks at me and he says, Mr. Camerano, I can't explain it. I saw it with my own two eyes and touched it with my own hands. But the imaging we took this morning shows neither of those uh, tumors that I was worried about. Of course, being a little bit of a um, um, sarcastic uh, pastor, I said, I can explain it to you, but you'd have to come to church on Sunday. (laughs) You see, when we hear stories of how God has moved in someone's life, We might be at the end of our rope. We might be convinced that God doesn't care about us. We might believe that God doesn't move in that way anymore. But hearing the story, even at the end of our rope, we're reminded that we believe in a God where hope is always possible. You see, when you get head and heart together, you can't but tell the story of what God has done for you. Not in a way to brag, not in a way to put the limelight on you or to claim holy points or to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, 
When we tell the story well, other people are reminded of what God might do in our lives. The road to Emmaus is about realizing that what we know in our head can, in, uh, can enrich what we experience with our heart so that we might use both head, heart, and hands to share the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.